Well, good morning. It's good to be in the Word of God together, to hear from Him. So let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Begin in verse 28 and go through chapter 3 and verse 3. 1 John 2. First John 2, beginning in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our church's statement of faith states the following concerning the return of Jesus Christ. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and, as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. There's three connected principles in that statement of faith that should grab our attention this morning. First, that Jesus will return at a time known only to God. It's not for us to determine uh, when Jesus returns. It's for us to be ready whenever he returns. There's a time known only to God. Therefore, this demands constant expectancy from us. This constant awareness that Jesus could return at any time. And thirdly, this constant expectancy motivates us toward godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. So the return of Christ as a doctrine, as a theological truth, is given to us in the scriptures for a purpose, and it's being well beyond just something to know in our heads. This doctrine is to be a motivation for our obedience, a motivation for our growth in godliness. This constant expectancy implies a call from God to live in holiness and hope, longing for his return and being excited that he could return at any moment. In Luke 12, verse 40, Jesus says, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
Jesus will return when we do not expect it. His return is imminent, and so there needs to be this constant expectancy. And this also produces patience in suffering. According to James, the uh, half-brother of Jesus, he writes in James chapter 5, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James is urging us to realize that the Lord Jesus could return at any moment, and that should cause us to be patient in the midst of suffering. It gives us energy and motivation to persevere through difficult times that we go through in this life. It also, James says, is a motivation for us to love one another well and to get along well in the family of God, to not grumble against one another because he could come at any moment and we do not want to hear his judgment upon us for not living in biblical, truthful, loving unity. So this state of constant expectancy produces godliness and love in our lives. It should also compel us to reach out to the unsaved with the only gospel that saves. The letter of Jude exhorts us this way, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus. That's an interesting phrase because we who are saved, we already have experienced the mercy of God. In conversion, in salvation, we understand that God has withheld his judgment from us because he judged his son in our place. And yet there's a sense we're also waiting for the mercy of the Lord. We're waiting for the full manifestation and the consummation of this relationship that God has brought us into through his mercy. But then Jude goes on to say, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So this understanding of how merciful God has been toward us should motivate us to be merciful to others, merciful and patient with those who doubt, merciful toward those who are lost in their sin, trapped, snatching them out of the fires of judgment, being merciful to sinners. 1 John 3.3 3 then makes this point crystal clear. If you look at that again, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So biblical hope in the future return of Christ purifies us. That's what John is saying. So this is a really important doctrine, but it's a really practical doctrine. 
Again, it's not just something to think about in our heads. Oh, yeah, I believe that. It's part of our church's doctrinal statement. Jesus coming again. No, but to live with an awareness, a consciousness, that this world is not our home. That as we were reminded last Sunday morning, that this present age that we live in is going to be followed by the age to come. That age to come is what the Lord Jesus has saved us for. So we need to be looking for his return. And since God is the only one who knows when that return will take place, we need to be prepared. And John helps us in today's passage. He provides three ways to prepare ourselves for the return of Jesus. Number one, cultivate healthy growth in your relationship with Christ. Cultivate growth in your relationship with Christ. This is something that was was just so fresh and new to me, having been born and raised in a religion that had nothing to do with a relationship with God. It was just a, a works-righteous religion whereby I was supposed to earn my way into God's favor. And then to come to know the true gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that all who will believe in him will be saved and have eternal life. And that salvation isn't something that is only for later, but it begins the moment that we trust in Christ. And there's this relationship then that God establishes with us through faith in his son. But like any other relationship, it has to be cultivated. It has to be nurtured if it is going to grow and to grow in love. So you see what John says here in verse 28 of chapter 2, and now, little children, abide in him. Stay close to him. Stay close to Christ so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So abiding in Christ leads to confidence, not shame. Shame is a powerful influencer. Most often, it is a negative force. We feel ashamed as Christians, and and sometimes we think about our past, and and we still feel shame about our past, and, and we let the devil take advantage of that and trap us in this sense of condemnation, or we feel shame over what we are doing right now in our lives as believers and how far we fall short. And yet, if we look at that properly, it can have a positive influence in our lives because it can drive us to the Lord to confess our sins and to then walk in holiness. But so often shame results in this feeling of being inferior or unworthy being beneath others, never worthy of their love. And so that has to be corrected by the truth of God's word, that we are loved by God regardless of whether or not we feel we are worthy because he is the one who determines to love us first. We love because he first loved us. 
And so our sense of feeling loved by God should not be based upon our performance, but it should be based upon our position of who we are in Christ, that we are loved by the Father. Jesus understands the temptation to let the the negative power of shame to control us and to let our sins define us and our failures define us. And so he tells us very clearly in his word that his cross did more than take our sin away, but it took our shame away, the shame that's connected to our sin. Jesus assumed the guilt of our sins and he died in our place. And so his blood removes the shame that sticks to our sin. Jesus, though he was sinless, he was treated as a sinner. He was treated as if he had done all of the things that you and I do and think and say. He was treated as the ultimate sinner and experienced the worst possible shame to publicly be crucified, the most embarrassing, humiliating, shameful form of death possible in his day. On a public street for all to see for all to mock, for all to throw things and spit upon him, to whip him. When he offered himself in our place, he despised the shame of this humiliating death. He took our shame on himself. He endured it. And now he takes it away. Listen to Psalm 34 and verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Isn't that amazing? Those who look to him, not those who look to yourself, you're never going to find freedom from your shame by looking into yourself. You will only find freedom from your shame by looking to Christ who endured all of your shame. He is the one who makes our faces radiant when we look to him. And then one of my favorite verses in the book of Hebrews Chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, speaking of Jesus, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Have you ever felt the sting of shame that comes with rejection? that comes from a person who is ashamed to be associated with you? Have you ever had a relationship with someone who doesn't want to be seen with you because you bring them shame? 
Jesus says, he is not ashamed to call us his siblings. Isn't that amazing? So when we are feeling shame and feeling rejection and feeling loneliness, who can we run to who understands completely? It is the Lord Jesus. He understands. He welcomes us into his family. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. So what John does here is he turns shame on its head and uses it positively as an incentive for us to make ongoing progress with the Lord. He teaches us here that that the desire to avoid future shame is a good motivation for us to get closer and closer to Jesus and to grow in holiness. And so this is a way in which shame can serve a good purpose. Now, we've been noticing the last few weeks this connection between abiding in Christ and abiding in his word. And as I've already mentioned more than once, that this is not original with John. Jesus is the one who taught John this. In fact, in John's gospel, we have these words from the Lord Jesus, where he says to his disciples, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, it he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He goes on then to say, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. He doesn't just say abide in me. He doesn't just say abide in my word. But he says abide in my love. Abide in an awareness of how deeply I love you. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying that to us who have a relationship with him. He's washed our sins away. He's drawn us into a relationship with him. And now he says, I want you to abide in my love. What that means then is that abiding in Christ and abiding in his word is not merely an intellectual or cerebral activity. It is an emotional activity. It has to do not just with our intellect, but it has to do with our emotions. Jesus wants us to be emotionally connected to him as our Savior who loves us so deeply. Abide in my love, he says. But this is a loving relationship that has to be cultivated, as I've already said, like every other relationship. Left by itself, it will wither and die, but it has to be cultivated for love to grow. Look at at Revelation chapter 2. This is something Jesus made clear to the believers at the church in Ephesus. 
Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, the glorified, resurrected, ascended Savior, is giving messages to the Apostle John to deliver to the churches. And to the church in Ephesus, it says in chapter 2, write these things, write this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. This is the Savior saying to the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. These are compliments coming from the Savior to the believers at the church of Ephesus. He says, I know you are patiently enduring trials and suffering and opposition. I know that you are faithfully holding to sound doctrine. You are testing everybody who teaches the word in your midst to make sure that they are sticking to Scripture. You are enduring persecution for my name's sake, and you're staying strong in this. You're not growing weary in this. But, verse 4, I have one thing against you. There's one thing, Jesus says to these believers, that I see that concerns me in you as followers of me. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have become loveless. You are rock solid in your doctrine. You are strong against the the opposition of the enemy. You are standing strong against the, the currents of the world as they sweep upon you. But you have become loveless. You've abandoned the love you had at first. This probably refers to the two sides of love that we've been seeing so connected in 1 John, that is, love for Christ and love for others. You can't really separate those two. You've left, abandoned your love for Christ, for me, Jesus says, and for others. You've let the fire of your love for me dwindle. You've let suffering rain showers upon that fire, and it's no longer as hot as it was before. You've abandoned your first love. So what do you need to do? You need to repent, verse 5. You need to remember from where you've fallen. 
You need to remember how close and emotionally connected even that you once felt with Jesus when he first saved you. And then you need to repent and do the works you did at first. You need to cultivate that relationship the way you did when you were a brand new believer. But now you've grown stale. And your heart is stiff, not soft and warm and pliable. Cultivate that love relationship with the Lord Jesus. John says that is the first way for us to be ready when Jesus comes again. Cultivate healthy growth in your love relationship with him. There's a second uh, way to be prepared that we see here in verse 29. John says, commit yourself to practicing the righteousness of Christ. Now notice how he words this. Again, he connects who we are positionally before God and who we need to be practically in the outworking of our salvation. If you know that he is righteous, if you know that Christ is righteous, and with all of that, connecting this with other New Testament passages, if you know that your standing before God in Christ is righteous, that you stand in his righteousness, then be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, or you may be sure. In other words, if you are resting in your righteous standing before God in Christ and you are letting that righteousness now work itself out in practical righteousness in your life, then you may be sure that you have been born of him, that you may be assured of your salvation, that you may be assured that you are in union with this one who is righteous. Now again, John is not saying that we as believers are not going to struggle with sin. He already dealt with that in chapter 1 and told us what to do when we find that we are sinning and we are to confess our sins before God and be forgiven because he is righteous and just. But what he is saying to us is that the the assurance of our salvation, again, does not come simply from being able to look back in the past and remember a moment in which you prayed a prayer or signed a card or walked an aisle in a crusade. It comes from looking at your relationship with God right now and asking yourself, do I see the general pattern of my life becoming the working out of practical righteousness? Do I see that this righteousness that was given to me at the moment I believed as a gift, do I see that becoming more and more visible in my life as a product of the working of the Holy Spirit in me? Commit yourself to practicing the righteousness of Christ. He's not talking about perfection, but he is talking about a new pattern. And he is talking about progression. 
If you look at your life and you look for perfection, you're always going to be discouraged. But if you look at your Christian life and you say, Lord, help me to see, has there been progression? Then if you are truly one of his and the Spirit of God has been working in you, then you are going to be able to say, thank you, Lord, that though I'm not what I ought to be, praise you, I'm not what I used to be. I see you working. I see you making progress in me, making me more and more like Christ. And you see this responsibility in Romans chapter 6. If you'll turn backwards there to Romans 6. And just getting the context here is that in chapter 5 of Romans, we learn about this positional righteousness that we receive by faith that is a gift from God at the moment that we turn to Christ and we then receive the righteousness of Christ and we now are clothed in the whiteness of his righteousness. But now in chapter 6 is dealing with practical righteousness. That is, how to put on the righteousness of Christ as fruit of our new standing before God in Christ. So pick it up with me here in verse 12. Well, pick it up in 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, that is your new standing before God in righteousness. That in Christ... You are dead to sin and alive to God, and you need to consider this. That is, you need to reckon this to be so, because it is so. But then look at what comes right after that. Paul's not saying, okay, that is who you are, now just coast your way through the rest of your Christian life, because you're already righteous. That is in the, that's the opposite of what he says. He says, instead, you are righteous now in Christ, dead to sin, alive to God. Now there's a therefore, verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So that's the principle of sin still remains as something that indwells our mortal bodies and is always wanting to manifest itself and work itself out through our bodies. And so he says, don't let it. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions or, or its lusts. Why? Because verse 11 says you're already dead to that. Why would you want to resurrect something that's already dead? Do not present your members, bodily members, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's the responsibility that now we have. 
since we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, we now have the power to do what he says here, to no longer give the members of our body over to sin because we have been rescued from that enslavement and instead to offer ourselves to God as instruments for practical righteousness. We have been set free, he goes on to say later down in the passage. We have been set free. We once were slaves of sin, verse 17, but now we have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. We do not have to, in Christ, be enslaved to sin. We are free. If, as a Christian, we become enslaved to sin, it is our choice to do so. We can blame no one else. We can blame no people. We can blame no circumstances. We can blame no one except ourselves because... God says, in Christ, you are dead to that, and now you're alive to God. We don't have to sin. We still do. And that's why we have so much of this instruction repeated for us, that we would continue to realize who we are in Christ, and we would apply that, practically speaking, to our lives. So commit to making progress in practical righteousness. And as you do so, John says, you may be increasingly sure that you are born again of the one who is righteous. This is how we grow in assurance of salvation. Thirdly, notice, there's a third way to prepare ourselves for the return of Christ. Comprehend the reality of your present status and future hope in Christ. These three verses are just amazing. Look at verse 1. See or behold. (laughs) Open your eyes, believer, to what kind of love the Father has given to us. Oh, what love! Behold this love that the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. This is our present reality. This is our present status. You want to understand reality? This is reality as a believer. You are already a child of God in Christ. Look at twice John says, this is now what we are. We are God's children now, verse 2. Why does John want us to be overcome by the breathtaking love of God for us? Because he knows that this is a motivator. 
for our holiness. It's a motivator for our obedience. I love the way Warren Wearsby says it. He says, an unbeliever who sins is a creature sinning against his creator. A Christian who sins is a child sinning against his father. The unbeliever sins against the law. The believer sins against love. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. That's our identity. That's the chief identity marker of us in Christ. We are now children of God. That's our present reality. But there's also a future hope. And again, John connects these. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. Now that's amazing. What does that mean? Well, it means we'll have glorified bodies. We'll still be able to recognize each other as Jesus in his glorified body still had scars. The disciples knew who he was as, as the inner three disciple, the, the inner circle disciples saw Jesus glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Moses and Elijah. They recognized them. Now, surely they had some help from the Holy Spirit figuring out who those two old guys were. But we will be like him. We'll be righteous. We stand righteous now. But one day when we see him, we shall be righteous. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our citizenship is in heaven, Scripture says. Paul says this in Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's our true home. And one of the reasons why we get so frustrated in this world, at least for myself, is that I think my expectations of this life are too high. I'm living sometimes with the expectation that this present age is where the fullness of my joy is found. And if I live that way, I'm always going to be frustrated. And I'm always going to struggle with joy until I realize that this present age is not where it's at. Where it's really at for us is in the age to come. And so our citizenship is first and foremost in heaven. And from it, Paul says, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his 
glorious body. And John says, you have that hope. You live with that hope. He who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So as God is working in our hearts and sanctifying us more and more to become like the Lord Jesus, let us not forget that one of the key aspects of this progressive sanctification is to keep our eyes looking for his return because he's coming. We don't know when. And so we want to be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to return? Do you know him? Are you trusting in him as your Savior and Lord and the only one who can make you right with God? And if so, then are you waking up each day remembering this could be the day? This could be the day. Father, help us, we pray. We are creatures of this world, earth-bound. Our feet are always connected to this planet. And so often we find it so natural then for our minds to be attached to this planet. But Lord, you, you know what we're waiting for. You know the fullness of our redemption that we don't yet see And yet it's coming. That age to come, it's on its way. Help us, Father, to live with that in view. Forgive us for keeping our eyes so horizontal, so filled with looking for satisfaction, joy, the fullness of life here in this life and forgetting that we must look vertical. We must look to you and we must look to the one who is coming again. Keep our eyes on him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.